Hey, have a seat. So good to see you today. I wanted to take you back to last week on a couple things, actually. One is, I, I don't often do a disclaimer or a correction, but I got to do a correction. So last week I said that Kim and I had blasted through all of the chosen in a week, only to find out when I got home that there's a season two. So we hadn't gone through all of the chosen. We had gone through all of season one. We're pretty much done with season two now. Yeah. But anyway, we, we watched that. So I just wanted to, to say that. You just, weren't a total vegetable. Just, just for fun, yeah. yeah. Then also last week, we get done with this service. We headed over to the river. And Jennifer Houston got baptized. And it was a, just a beautiful moment to be able to step into that little chillier water than we have had, but step, stepped into the water. And I loved just before because we were waiting. We waited until about noon and had some people show up and we're standing there. And Jennifer hadn't told her husband, Dave, that she was going to get baptized. And so we're standing there. And this, for me, the perspective I have, this is feeling a little bit like Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham says there's going to be a sacrifice. And Isaac going, I don't see a lamb anywhere. And you could see Dave kind of looking and going, I know all these people, and I, 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 what's going on here? And then we said Jennifer is getting baptized. Tears flowed from his eyes. So it's a, just a beautiful moment, beautiful moment to be able to celebrate that. I love baptisms, that chance to make that public declaration of faith. I'm glad that God asks us to do that, and we get to do that. And I'm thankful for the people that make it possible. Yeah. Yeah, we get to use the Four Rivers Education Center as our, as our spot to do our baptisms. And it's awesome. The, the place uh, that we get to do that is like kind of on a river bend if you haven't been down there. And the thing about the river bend is that it generally likes to collect a lot of river things. Uh, <laughs> I'm being polite, river fish food. And it's, it's nasty. So it, it can be kind of gross. And we have three people who all season long who have done a really great job of getting down there sometimes a half hour to an hour early to clear and then stay in the water keep to keep clearing and keep clearing. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's weeds. Other times it's fish that have decided to pass on to the next life. Yeah. Um, but that's John Dowson, Don Yost, and Jared Brooks. So just super big thanks to those guys for doing that. Just really, really appreciate with, that. Without them, people would come out of the water looking like something out of Little Mermaid instead right, of, right, instead right. of Absolutely. Baptism, so. you've got you got a corn maze coming up. Sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, this Saturday night, uh, Julie actually set up a an event for us to go to Heaps Haunted Corn Maze, and that was sent out in the weekend update. So you can use your update to register, or you can use the app, or you can use the website. We are asking that you register just so we have an idea of who's coming, but you're going to buy your own tickets. So there are links both in the update and in the registration form to buy your own tickets for the 730 maze. So we're all going to meet there at the big giant pumpkin outside of heaps at our, around seven. And then, um, We'll do the 730 maze. There are some other things that we're going to be doing on that night, so you might want to bring a little extra cash. You don't have to participate in all those things, but uh, the 730 maze. One thing that, with that is there are limited spots, so we want you to get signed up as quickly as you can. If you get to Thursday and you go to sign up for the 730 maze and there's no times, please don't just pick a random time. Let us know. Reach out to, to someone from Revive to let us know that, hey, we... There's no more spots in the 730 maze, so because uh, we we don't want you to have to do it alone, right? Okay, because right. it's scary. All right, uh, <laughs> we want to do it with you. So we'll we'll set up a second time uh, where we can get someone else with you. But we're gonna meet. Um, we'll drop off there at Heaps at seven. Pickup is at 10 p.m. that night. All from from Heaps. So it should be a good time. I had I had the best time yesterday. Uh, you were involved in 
being a piece of organizing that, that Shanahan cross-country meet yesterday. And it was, it was fun. We, we have not been back to that park since you were a runner there. Mm-hmm. So to watch you organizing all that, putting that together, was, it was amazing. And, and a fun way to, I think, celebrate with our community. You, just, you did a great job. It was fun to see a couple of, couple of our runners had a, had a great run again. We keep bragging on them, but yeah. uh, it was, it's really fun. So we had 18 teams there. Uh, just a crazy amount of people. Um, I got to see my, my high school cross-country coach, Coach Gummerson, came out to scout the talent that he's going to be re- having next year. Uh, and I, I got to read off the, the people who medaled in that race. And Vaughn medaled in the varsity boys race. Henry medaled in the open boys race. So, yeah, just, I don't know. I, I keep giving those guys shouts because I, they've earned it. Like, they've done a lot of hard work. And it is yeah. really cool to have, have the community influence. And Vaughn even put up with a surprise attack. Um, people think I'm, people <laughs> had to think, thought that I was a crazy person yesterday because my girls, my varsity girls came up and like, they sprayed, they spray painted my hair red and they put crosses, red crosses on my <laughs> cheeks. So I look like this maniac. I'm drenched in sweat because I had been the pace horse for the back mile of few of the races, and I came up after Vaughn's race had ended. He's talking with a friend of his and a parent, and I just, without him knowing, scooped him up upside down and started walking away, and I heard the parent in the background go, uh, okay. (laughs) So they put up with a lot, which is why I keep giving them the shouts. So yeah, great job. That was a lot of fun to to have. Your your update this week really focused in on the topic of this series and the topic of today. Today we're talking about the different kinds of Bible translations that are available, why use what version when, all that sort of thing. But we tried to send you links to a whole bunch of different Bible tools and versions and, and things that could be really helpful to you. I'm curious what like, of your favorite Bible tools, what do you turn to most often? We talk about listening to dwell, and I do that pretty often in the, in the car. But when I'm actually sitting down to set up a teach for Sunday or Wednesday night, one of my favorite tools is blueletterbible.org. Uh, hmm. they, they have a ton of commentaries. And the thing that I like doing sometimes is reading the version that I'm going to present with a commentary from another version. So I might be reading like the ESV, but a commentary from a Bible scholar who is commenting on the King James Version or something like that. So I kind of get to see what I'm going to share with them, but have multiple perspectives without switching my, my brain's focus from the uh, the version that we're reading. So tons of options, though, tons of, of different ways that you can um, find out uh, more about the Bible. And then uh, study Bibles. I love study Bibles. You know, some people, some of you still walk around with a paper Bible. Uh, if, if, I were, if I were sitting in church, I'd have a paper Bible because it doesn't send messages while I'm, while I'm reading. You know, I inevitably, if I'm looking at my phone, a text message, something comes through, and I'm like, do Changing I dare look during church? Ah, yeah, right, exactly, always injured. Anyway, um, so I, I, like, I like paper, and some of them are really thick, and it's not thick because it's got a bunch of extra print stuff or, or, big, or big letter. It's because it's got the, the, uh, com- com- the commentary yeah, that right. goes along with it. So what's your favorite study Bible? What do you like to use? I guess I wouldn't say favorite. It's just the one that I have. Okay. Uh, before they passed, my, my grandma and grandpa Fry. Uh, gave me a, uh, or they gave all, as a Christmas gift one year, they gave all their grandkids a John MacArthur ESV study Bible with our names on it. Uh, so that is the, the commentary, like of all the Bibles that I have, that is the, the commentary version that I have. Uh, 
and it, it does a great job. I mean, it is, like you're saying, it's a thick one mm -hmm. uh, because there's a, about a third of the page is the actual text of the Bible, and then two-thirds of the page is notes. Yeah. And it's not all just like the musings of John MacArthur and his team. A lot of the notes are literally, this, is a, this verse is a reference to the Psalms. This verse is a reference, a direct you know, reference to something out of Isaiah. Uh, so you get to see the, the context in which Paul or, or, you know, any of the other writers are, are giving, which is great. The thing that I love about that is when I bring that to my, my Monday night small group, it makes me sound really smart because <laughs> I can just sit there and read it. Uh, but it also, the commentaries help to have because it gives you, it gives you context for what was happening in the current time. So mm. if I was to say, for example, if we, were, if we went to Arizona today, and I mentioned Lower Wacker, The Bean, and Portillo's, people from Arizona would be like, what is wrong with you? But we all understand that's Chicago. There's They'd some... understand because they moved from Chicago. No, that's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but still, uh, it's, it's important to know the context of the time. So this week, we were in Romans chapter 3, and we got to verse 13. It says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, or the venom of asps, is under their lips. Mm. If you're just reading that, you might mm. be like, what the heck? Is that just some imagery? Like, what's going on here? But then you get into the, the commentary, and the, the commentary shares, this would have been a visceral image for the people in learning how to uh, care, be careful with their words, because it's a, a reference to a grave site. So when someone died, the body would be laid to rest, and they'd put it in a tomb, roll the, roll the, the stone in front of the tomb, not just to block the, the literal image of the dead body, but to prevent the smell from escaping. So when you're hearing the, that the, the venom of the asp was on their list, they're, they're literally talking about people, you know, sharing like this nastiness of their heart and that smell. The words of their mouth are really sharing what's on their heart. Hmm. So it's, it, it does a really good job of, of sharing the, the context that we, if we're just reading, might blow right past it or be confused and just sit in wonderment or amazement. Um, but so having those commentaries for those little, those little pieces can really make a, a big difference. I love study Bibles. Kim gave me the NIV study Bible for our wedding in, in, uh, back then, 1985. Uh, the NIV at that point was 1984, so it was a brand new, uh, ver well, that edition, I think it actually came out in 73. But anyway, um, I, I, love, I love the study Bible and two things on that. One is I'd encourage you, if you have a study Bible, Look at the verse first and really sit on the verse before you go find the explanation. We believe in something called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity means it's understandable by anybody that brings a sincere heart to it and the Holy Spirit is guiding them. And so don't think that, well, that guy's smarter, so I'm going to go and listen to what she had to say rather than, rather than taking the time to stop and say, what does the Word of God have to say? Don't, don't run too quickly too quickly to the notes. I, I think that's, that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is to remember that the notes, the notes are not in inspired scripture. I know that may seem obvious, but scripture is inspired. The notes are comments, comments by human beings who are not inspired by God. So uh, the note is there and it may be great, but you also have to check and see do they really know what they're talking about? I, I think for the most part, they've done a great job with them, but you still always have to remember it's a human, human perspective on this. Yeah. So I'd like you to get the Word of God. We're going to go to communion uh, first before 
we break into the message today. And um, we're continuing through Psalm 119. Today we're going to do verses 97 through 112. In there, you're going to hear one of the more familiar verses from the Bible. I'll let you listen for it and, and find that. But um, listening again to this, to this psalmist's love for the Word of God and love for God Himself and how the two play together. Let's listen for that. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I am even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your commandments. I refuse to walk on any evil path, so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me, and they're sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I'm determined to keep your decrees to the very end. Father, as we turn to communion today, we do as we do so often, come into your presence, aware of your presence, and we know also the condition of our hearts and that perhaps the sin we have committed or the sin we harbor, the attitude we bring to the moment actions of the weak are not consistent with a person who claims to have love and full devotion for you. And we come to this point every week to be able to reflect and ask, God, is there anything between me and you? If there's anything I've said, done, thought, if there's any motive that is not a, a pure reflection of who you are. And if any of that is the case, God, right now, we confess that sin to you. We confess it. Knowing that you are the forgiver. That you have the ability and the right to forgive our sins. We receive that forgiveness and we celebrate that forgiveness as we walk this morning to communion. In Jesus' name, the one who made all of this possible. Amen. For whatever job you have uh, in life, I suspect you received some form of training, you know, whether it was just a simple uh, 30 minutes, this is the way to do the job, maybe it was an apprenticeship or, or a trade school, you got a degree, whatever it might be, you went and got some, some form of education believing that what you learned there would give you everything you needed to do the job. And then you showed up at the job pretty much on the first day and went, wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff they didn't train me. What am I supposed to do? And we know that the majority of life is really on-the-job training, that we learn as we do. That's the way it works. 
So same is true with pastors. You go off to seminary, you think you're learning all this great stuff, you show up the first day at church and you realize, wow, nobody wants to talk about Hebrew. Nobody wants to talk about Greek. But there's all this stuff that we do need to work through. And one of them is, how do you make decisions as a group? How do you go about making, making good decisions? And what's the process of leadership for that? So you go all the way back to mid-90s. We're at a, a church building over on Black Road. The church building was built in 1968, and when they, when they built it, they put in really great orange carpeting in 1968, and I think it had had a couple cycles of being popular again, but by 1995, it was pretty out. It was still in pretty good condition nonetheless, except for in areas where, where the, the sun, like in the foyer, the sun shone through the window, and it turned that a completely different color. I mean, it was just really, it was it was. You can't even describe what that color was. It was so different than the orange. And so our church agreed. We were in agreement. We got to replace the carpet. I mean, it was just exciting. We're like, let's do this. And so we, we formed a task force. Task force was a way of not using the word committee. We had a task force. We were, we were 90s, man. And so we got the task force going, and then they met with decorators, and they got ideas, and they landed on one, I thought, really beautiful selection. It was kind of a mossy green. I suspect if you go to the building, you'd see it there today. It was a really attractive carpeting. And we had, in those days, we had quarterly business meetings, and the church needed to vote on the color of the carpet. And so we put the sample up there, and we said, any questions? And there weren't questions so much as comments, lots of comments, not particularly nice comments, comments that are still seared in my brain, ears, and hearts. And, uh, and, and, and it went on and on and on and on. I'm like, okay, well, Get used to it, I, you know, because this, this is the one we're going with. And shortly after that, uh, almost every person that was involved in that task force came to me and said, if you ever want to make a decision again, please don't include me in another task force. I don't want to be a part of it. It was at that point that I realized that when you're making decisions involving taste, you don't ask 60 people. You just don't do it. To the point that when this building was built, Two people made all the taste decisions, and their names weren't Dennis and Kim. It was nice and small. It's a beautiful place, but you don't make taste decisions by, with 60 people sitting in a room. So why do I talk about old carpeting today? Because I think it's possible when we talk about comparing translations to the Bible, it's possible to think that this is all about taste. It's all about, it's all about personal preference. I love old English, hence King James. Uh, I, I like something a little bit more modern, hence NIV. I love flowery and fancy, and so I got me the message. And, we, and we, think that, we think that it's about just a personal preference choice. And the truth is, there is some preference involved. There is something in your wiring and in the copy of the Word of God that you use, use, use most often that probably has to do with something involving taste. But there are more important elements involved than taste. There are more important things that we need to understand. And so today we're going to look at some of the most common English translations, the ones that are most used by people here and try to understand why one translation is best for a certain circumstance and another is for another. And you notice what I said there. It's not that one is good and one is bad. They all have a usefulness in a particular context. So let me start with really good news. The good news is we have choices. We have lots of choices. If you're carrying around a 
a smartphone and you have YouVersion or some other Bible app, you're literally carrying around a library of Bibles all the time. You're, you have dozens and dozens of different versions sitting on your phone. Compare that to the times of Jesus where a Jewish person would, person would go to their local synagogue and they would have a scroll of part of the Bible, not even necessarily a whole book of the Bible. You might have the scroll of Isaiah 55 for this month, and that's your scroll, and that's all you get. They didn't get to touch it themselves. They didn't get to carry it to church. They didn't have to look it up on their phone. They didn't get to see all kinds of different ways it was worded. That's all they had. We are privileged to have such a wide variety of options and choices. We have so many opportunities, and that's something for us to really celebrate. Now, as we dive into this, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between a paraphrase and a translation. You might think of a paraphrase as simply putting it in my own words. And I think that's partially true, but, but there's even a little bit more uh, going when it comes to a paraphrase. Classically, the, the main paraphrase people used as I was growing up was the Living Bible. Not the New Living Translation, that's a translation, but the Living Bible. Paraphrase works something like this. Let's say uh, Shelley texts Brian and says, Dad went to Jewel. And, and Brian texts Nate and says, Dad went to the grocery store. And Nate texts Kim and says, he went to the store. You see what happened there? The little, the, little, the little digression, because he could be half the world. And store, if it's Dennis, is probably Ace, Menards, or Home Depot three of the best places on the planet. That's it, right? I mean, the, the guess that he's at Jewel is probably lower than one of those three. That's what happens with the paraphrase. You're taking, you're taking what someone said and then what someone said about what someone said and what someone said about what someone said and you're writing a version of it now too. So you're not writing from the most original possible source. That's the weakness of a paraphrase. What's the source? The translation is going back to the earliest possible source and is saying, this is what that particular text said. That's why a translation is stronger. So what are the issues that matter when it comes to a translation? Well, the first would be, I'd say, the reliability of the original text. And by original, I'm not talking about the original text of the Word of God. We don't have the original. What we have is copies of the original. But what's the, what's the earliest, best text possible? And I'm going to write a translation from that. So, just putting this out there, King James was written in 1611, which means 1711, 1811, 1911, 2011, 400 years later, we don't, we, a lot of discoveries have happened in that time texturally. And it's not based on the earliest best manuscript. So I'm wanting the earliest best sources from which I'm writing. Second is the perspective of the translator. I personally want to hear from an evangelical translator. I want to hear from someone who believes the way I believe. Why is that? Well, we would all love to, I said this last week, we would all love to claim objectivity. Nobody's completely objective. You don't even know your prejudices for the most part. 
They're, they're baked into you by experience. You don't know why you think you do, why you like what you do. There are things you automatically assume that you don't even know until you get outside of your universe. And so I want to make sure that the person that's writing this is coming from, from an evangelical perspective, in my viewpoint, translating, not writing, translating this. The third is the agenda of the publisher. Sadly, in modern publishing, most of the control is in the hands of the publisher, not the author. The author very often doesn't even get a chance to choose the title. They, they will literally be told, I know lots of authors, they'll literally be told, we don't want that in this part of this book. They've eliminated some of the most important stuff that needs to be said. It's too long, we want it out, we don't agree with that concept, we're cutting it. You need to know what the agenda of the publisher is. And publishing houses, even Christian publishing houses, have agendas. So what's the agenda of the publisher? And then finally, you need to know the translation process. And this is where we're going to camp for a moment. There are two basic ways to go about translation. One is called essentially literal this is a word-for-word -word translation, and it's considered a formal style of translation. The other is called dynamic equivalence, and it's more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation, and I would call it more functional. So you're reading, uh, you're reading a dynamic uh, equivalence, it feels like American English. You're kind of reading it going, this feels like the way I would have written this, or someone I know would have written this. That's the difference between the two. If you look at the... Uh, introduction of the New Living Translation. They say this, a dynamic equivalence translation can also be called a thought-for-thought -thought translation as contrasted with a formal equivalence or word-for-word -word translation. So those are, those are the two basic philosophies behind translation. So I'm going to put a bunch of uh, acronyms up here and give you an idea of where things fall. You have essentially literal mixed dynamic equivalence, so they don't have them on either end because they're going to put paraphrased or paraphrastic way over here toward this end. So essentially literal, you see things like King James, you see uh, New American Standard, you see English Standard Version. Those are primarily what we would call word-for-word -word translations. They've gone to the text, they've said this is the best uh, English translation of the word that appears there. You see that uh, in the middle, dynamic equivalence. This is thought for thought. That's where New Living and Good News Bible, those types of, of Bibles fall. And then, and then you have the NIV that has a, a foot in each world. So sometimes the NIV is pretty word for word, and sometimes it's saying, ah, the best way to go here is a little bit more dynamic equivalence, thought for thought versus word for word. Come on over to a very paraphrastic. As we already said, Living Bible was a paraphrase, and so it, it, speaks, it speaks very um, very commonly. And then you have the message. And if you, I love this about the message. I've talked to different people throughout the week about their favorite Bible translation. And when I ask, what about the message? I get two reactions. It is the best thing in the history of the earth. I love it. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. Or, ew, I can't stand it. It makes my skin crawl. It's like it goes in either direction. Nobody's just kind of neutral on the message. You either love it or you hate it. And a lot of it is because he's just, he's talking the way he would talk. And some people can really relate to that and some people can't. So gives you an idea of, of the continuum, which then, you know, just kind of begs the question, so which is the best? Which one should we use, Dennis? Which is the best one up here? Well, it's interesting. I, I think that you look at it and you might go, well, word for word, that makes sense. But, but thought for thought, that, that, that would help American English readers to understand a little better. What, oh, I don't know. Which one is best? Well, let, let's kind of walk through this a little bit. Let's say you love word for word. That's the best. 
What do you do with figures of speech? You know American figures of speech. Break the ice, that's the last straw, pulling my leg, speak of the devil. It's raining cats and dogs. You're talking to somebody from another culture and you say, it was raining cats and dogs and they have this image of Illinois having felines falling from the sky. What, in the, what are you talking about? I don't get it. And, and we would translate it, it's raining really hard. Oh, I get it. What do you do with that? What do you do with that idiom? Do you, you, do you do it word for word and leave a person to figure it out? Or do you just come up with an American idiom that means the same thing or an explanation that means the same thing? How about when we say word for word? I got news for you. When people claim it's word for word, here's what it's not. Word for word order. If you've taken Spanish, French, or any other language, you know that they don't like to do things the same order we do. We like our noun, our verb, and our direct object in that order. And we'll put in some spice along the way, but we want that order. You're reading Spanish, you're reading French, you're reading Greek, you're reading Hebrew. They just mush the words all over the place. It doesn't have the same way of working that we do. In Greek, very often they put what they consider to be the most important word in the sentence first. So that you know, this is important. And in English, if you read that word for word in English, you'd go, man, this person can't talk. So even when somebody says word for word, it's not necessarily word for word. They're bringing it over to an English structure I'm not even going to get into this whole thing today, but I just want to put it out there. What do you do with man? What do you do with mankind? What about women? What about people? All that sort of thing. What do you do with that part? And finally, is it understood by the reader? You may have the best word-for-word translation, but if you can't understand it, what do you do with that? So these are all things that we need to think through. Now I want to give you some biblical examples of uh, major translations so you can see kind of what happens as you're working through this. And as you do, you might start to see why one is better in one context and another is better in another. So you go to 1 Kings 2.10, and it says, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Let's see if you can do this better than the first service. What do you think the Bible said, means when it says David slept with his fathers? That's amazing. You need to teach it for service. I mean, they're all like, I don't know. What's the wrong answer? Yeah, he died. He, was, he, was, he died, obviously. NIV 2011, and there's a difference between 2011 and 1984. NIV 2011 says David rested with his ancestors. NLT says David died and was buried. <laughs> so you look at it and go, to me, American English, NLT makes perfect sense. Here's a question, though. By not using the literal word, do we miss out on a picture the Bible might be trying to relay about death? Slept. Rested. Are we missing something, perhaps? I'm not saying we are. I'm asking. Uh, and I said 1984 and 2011 are different in NIV. Notice what they do here. David rested with his fathers. David rested with his ancestors. So you're starting to see the the gender agenda take place there where they're pulling out father and they're going toward just a more generic he slept with people instead of he slept with his fathers. Yeah, what do you do with that? Judges. All that generation were also gathered to their fathers. So I have this friend in St. Louis. We were on staff together 
and he had the responsibility of preaching on Father's Day. This is not a pastoral fabrication story. He, he had the responsibility of preaching on Father's Day, and he was going to preach from Judges 2.10, the importance of being gathered to your fathers. It's important to spend time with your fathers. It's important to listen to your fathers. It's important to love your fathers. And I said, Tim, it means they died. Do you still want to preach that message? Is that still the way you want to go after that generation had been gathered to their ancestors? After that generation died, it was over. But is there something that we gain from being gathered to those that have gone before instead of just dead, period, end of story? Romans 13:4. For he is God's servant, talking about government, government authority. He is God's servant for your good, and if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There are a couple things going on here. One, the sword does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, NIV 2011 says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Okay, that helps me understand vain. I like that, Right? NLT, but if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. Is there not a different implication of bearing the sword and punish? Bearing the sword could be death penalty. Punish could be another ticket for blowing off that stop sign. There's quite a, there's quite a difference there. And then let me just throw in the, the message just for a kick. The police aren't just there to be admired in their uniforms. Um, The little bit of problem I have with this is police is one small segment of government authority. And if this is the only Bible you were reading, you might think that it's a commentary on cops and not a commentary on government all along. Cute, fancy, love it, just eh. Then you have this other issue, end sentence, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Ooh, Wrath, God's wrath. God angry? I I don't know if I want to deal with that. So NIV goes, they're agents of wrath. And then NLT says, for the very purpose of punishing those who do wrong. Do you not think that we need to struggle a little bit with the concept of the wrath of God as opposed to just, ah, you might get punished if you blow off that sign. Mark 2, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, but the last line is talking about Jesus doing miracles. It says, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Both the NIV and NLT don't mention the hands at all. They just say he does miracles. Are the hands important? Were the hands important for the performance of the miracle? I'll tell you what, hearing that Jesus touched a leper to me is a big deal. He didn't go, stay over there, zing, He touched a person that anybody else would have said, run for your life, cover your mouth. We might get it too. In John chapter 12, Jesus is talking about his death. Now my soul is troubled. NIV says, now my heart is troubled. Message says, I'm shaken. I think the subtlety of the word soul says what? We're composed of more than just one thing. Body, soul, spirit. Heart and soul are not necessarily the same thing. I is not necessarily an expression of my soul. Those words just might matter. Does every word matter? Well, I kind of like what Jesus says. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not just the thoughts, every word, every word. 
Is it possible that in not translating every word or looking at every word, we lose meaning and we lose intention? We lose something there. And I'd further wonder, in an attempt to accommodate for modern sensibilities, are we missing the meaning and spirit of the word? Is there a softening going on that removes what God is trying to say to us? So having said all that, we come back to the question, which is best? Which is best? And what I believe is different versions are best for different situations. Think that if you're trying to get back to what was the original word, head over to ESV. Head over and try to understand what's going on there. If, if you're spending time in devotional thought with God, the message is phenomenal. If you're a newer believer or you're just trying to understand the Bible, I love the New, New, New Living Translation. And I say newer believer, it's the one I primarily use because it really, there's something there that I, I get something from the Word of God when I'm listening to that. Different versions are best in different situations. So let's just, let's just walk through some of the modern translations. I say modern, I'm starting with King James. It's a few hundred years old, nonetheless. King James, my church growing up, King James only. Is it? Literally, people would say, it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. They loved their King James Bible, right? That was it. That was it. Uh, it was, for many years, the English standard of Bibles. Beauty of language ingrained in many hearts, and it's, it's memorable. It's easy to memorize. If you went to Awana, and I did, you got a lot of verses down in the King James. That's where, that's where they're stored. Weakness, for me as a pastor, I'm translating into translation all the time. I'm, I'm not only explaining Greek, I'm explaining Old English. And there's a lot of weird Old English in that Bible, all right? There's a lot of stuff that I'm just saying, you got to understand what King James is talking about, okay? Uh, textual discoveries, there's been 400 years of textual discoveries since that time, important textual discoveries. And I think to me, one of the greatest weaknesses is King James is divided into single verses, Single verses. Now, if you're not paying attention, what you'll see is every once in a while, they have a paragraph mark in front of a verse. But you don't notice that because you're just looking at single verses. The Bible was not written in single verses with numbers. Paul didn't sit there, Romans 1, 1. The numbers are added later for reference. The, the, the basic unit of thought in the Bible is the paragraph, not the verse. It's important to see the paragraph. The paragraph is where the idea is happening, not just a verse. A verse is a sentence in a paragraph. So you want that. Strength of the English Standard Bible, great evangelical translators, very good evangelicals there, and it is as literal as possible. If you're looking for literal, if you're trying to figure out what the real word was, this is the one you probably want to turn to. Weaknesses, not American English. It, it, it feels wooden, and it's not free-flowing. Some of you use it and say it works for me. I get that, but it, but it doesn't feel like an American speaking. It feels a, feels a little bit removed. Strengths of the NIV, evangelical translators again. It tilts toward word for word, so it's got that strength. And again, it's memorable, and so is ESV. I think any of those are easier to memorize in than if you try memorizing in New Living, it gets a little more difficult to memorize common English. Weakness, the gender agenda. I just, they're, they're driven by the gender agenda in a lot of their choices. And if you're looking for modern English, the funny part is people who have gone to New Living and then gone back to read NIV say, wow, this feels old. So in that short a time, it feels different than modern American English. Strength of NLT, evangelical translators. It's an American English Bible. It's not a paraphrase like the Living Bible, and it's understandable. The weakness 
uh, gender agenda, I'd have to ask myself with this one, do I trust the translators? And what do I mean by that? I want to know who the translators are and what their agenda is. Because we saw it already. There are words that they chose based on what they thought the word meant. I want to know how you're wired to know why you would make that word choice. And I'm going to have to go back and check what was the original word. I wonder sometimes if the NLT is adjusting for cultural sensibilities. And in the process, uh, they're removing some of the important convicting parts of the Word of God. And, and then again, just that question, can I trust it on its own? Can I read this and this alone and know that I'm receiving what the Word of God had to say? Strength of the message, freshness, beauty, and creativity. Weakness, no verse markings. So if you're reading it together, good luck. Y'all got to point your finger on where you are in the book. It's very, very free translation. It reads like a paraphrase, and I personally would never trust it on its own. I'm going to be turning back to something more literal to find out what was there. It's not saying I'm going to eliminate it. I, I love it. I use it. But I want to know what the other says. So let me just give you some of the conclusions of where I live, okay? I like the New Living for, for a wide-ranging audience. We use New Living on Sunday morning. I have to speak to seventh graders and 70-year-olds. I speak to people who have a seventh-grade education and people who have a couple of masters. And in the process, I think it's important to have a version of the Word of God that anyone in the room can pick up and go, I understand what's going on here. And there's a great understandability with the New Living Translation. I love that part. And I commend, we, we give them away. You know, you're trying to get somebody to read the Bible. Have them try it. Because they'll read it, and they'll, if they had any King James experience, they'll go, wow, this is not the way I remember the Bible. And they're shocked by how common American English it is. But I'm always going to use a second Bible, a more literal translation for accuracy and for challenge. I think it's good for us to be challenged by words like sword, by words like God's wrath and to ask, what's going on there? And I didn't even know it was there in some of the more modern translations. Always, always, always see the message as commentary, not as a primary Bible. Always know he is being very free. And so that's not going to be my exclusive Bible, all right? I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to others. Use different versions for a fresh voice. There's something, you know, you're, you're going through a stale time spiritually, try a different version. It's amazing how literally a different voice will prompt something that you weren't catching before. And then the final, I, I put these words up here, walk with humility. Again, there's a, there's a taste and preference issue with versions of the Bible that Christians allow themselves to get, up, get caught up in petty, stupid little wars. And, and, and it's just, it's not what God desires. God wants us to walk in humility. So let me just be a little straightforward about this. ESV, uh, there is a tendency because, and, and with all the more literal translations, there is a tendency for people who go for the more literal to look at a person who's going more thought for thought and say, someday you'll grow up. That is, that is, that is so far from biblical humility. That is so far from biblical humility. And so we, we've got to be careful that we're not taking a translation, making it king, and saying, someday you all might have the possibility of being like me. No way. We want to walk in humility when it comes to versions of the Word of God. 
Beyond version, we already talked about study Bibles this morning. I love study Bibles, and I think they're, it's a great way to be able to carry around a set of commentaries all the time. Like Brian says, you even get to look smart in your group until you realize somebody else has the same study Bible, and they go, oh, you just read the notes. Use Bible apps. I want to encourage you from time to time. Uh, Crossway is one of the Bible publishers. I think they're doing the best in terms of the variety of tools you have for enjoying the Word of God. So they've produced, um, we use these a lot in our small groups, but they've produced the Bible in, in small journals. So this is First and Second Peter in a booklet, and it has passage on one side and open paper, paper on the other side to be able to write notes. So you can, you know, your, your small group can literally study a book of the Bible and just have that book and just go through that. So, so that's really helpful. I love, the, I love the journal Bibles. I also love, they've produced, uh, they've produced the Bible without verse markings. So you're just reading it like you'd read a book, which again gives you a totally different feel when you're just reading it that way. So all kinds of other things uh, that we, can, that we can learn and enjoy. And, and again, the time we live, the time we live affords us so much opportunity, which really brings it down to that. We have the opportunity. Are we taking advantage of the opportunity? Bible says it clearly, to whom much is given, much will be required. Nobody in our generation as a devoted Christ follower should be saying, I don't know what the Bible says. Some of us have 20 of them in our home. And you have a whole library of them on your phone and your computer, and your iPad. It's there all the time. And if this is the only Bible you're getting on Sunday morning, you're starving to death spiritually. You're starving spiritually. You need to get into the Word of God. So many of these apps offer reading programs. Get into the reading programs. Just make sure that it's actually reading the Bible and not just reading devotionals and commentaries about the Bible. Get into the Bible. Read it. So, Father God, thank you for your word, for not leaving us to figure it out on our own. And I pray today as we walk from this place that we, will, that we will celebrate the fact that we live in a generation where we have so many options, that we'll use the translations well, that we'll learn what you have to say, and that we won't just be all wonky about it, it won't just be head knowledge, but it will, it will seep into our hearts so that we might not sin against God, so that we might live a righteous life, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have prayer going on down here. I'll be at the door. We'll see you later.